I'm Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. On deck for episode two, first, we have more people who hate my writing. Second, a ridiculous true story from Europe. Third, the best thing I've read this week. Fourth, geeking out with elevators. Fifth, ayudame, I need some advice. Y finalmente, a dedication and a message from my front yard, squirrel. This week's segment called People Who Hate My Writing. I'm going to read a review of a novel I published in 2017 with Knopf, Random House, New York. The novel is titled Too Shattered for Mending and has a narrator called Little, the grandson of the town's meth king nicknamed Big. The book is set in the real town of Pierce, Idaho, a former logging town that is now two-thirds abandoned and overrun by meth. All that is true. I started the book by thinking about the following conflict, though. What if two brothers were loyal in every single way except for the fact that the younger brother was in love with the older brother's girlfriend? And what if the older brother was in jail for 60 days and the younger brother was spending a lot of time with that girlfriend? Also, another conflict. The grandfather, Big, has disappeared and Little is trying to figure out where he's gone. Although the book has a teen narrator, the New York Times called it more of a crossover book, meaning it's a literary novel that's probably better for adults to read. Who knows? But someone named Jamie wrote the following on Goodreads, a fan response and book sharing website. Jamie wrote this. I wanted to love this. I wanted it to be the book for me. It wasn't. That makes me really sad. Sadder than I was for Little and his desperately bleak life. Jesus, this book is unrelenting. And in the end, it doesn't wrap up. It just ends. Long book, and yet it doesn't have an ending? I thought about Jamie's review, and this week, I wrote a letter back to her. Dear Jamie, I just want to apologize to you for my novel, Too Shattered for Mending. To be honest, I don't really know how to write a novel. This is a secret between you and me, just us, so don't tell anyone, but um, I never took a novel writing class. I was accepted into the University of Montana's Masters of Fine Arts Fiction program, an excellent writer development program where I could have taken a novel class, and I really wanted to attend school there, but I couldn't afford it. Jamie, I didn't have $70,000 sitting around to spend on those two years, so I never got an MFA in fiction, but please don't tell anybody. Let's just keep this between us. I did study poetry with Dorian Locks in college at the University of Oregon. 
And I feel like I can write an okay poem, sort of. I mean, kind of. I don't know. I, I, I think I can, and I give Dorian Locks the credit for all of my published poems, but I have no idea how to write a novel. Again, please don't tell anybody about this, but basically, I just started writing novels without any instruction at all. I read a lot of great books. I read a lot of great novels, and I just started writing things. I, I started trying things. The full truth, Jamie, is I wrote a god-awful first and second novel draft that my friend Jose read and then told me was the worst thing I'd ever written. He said, oh, Pedrocito, honestly, this is so, so bad. So I threw that book out. I didn't even try to revise it further. Then I wrote a memoir, which got published and was sort of like a novel. It was a narrative, at least. So I just kept writing after that. And fast forward a few years, now, and I have no clue why, Random House just publishes whatever novel, like, uh, whatever novel-length trash I write. So, Jamie, uh... (laughs) That's where we are. That's the story. And I just want to say to you, Jamie, I'm sorry about the ending. If you have any ideas for improving my novel endings, please reply to this letter before I submit my next novel draft to my agent in the spring. But in the meantime, I guess I'm just going to keep fooling people. But I didn't fool you, did I? Thanks for letting me get these things off my chest. Sincerely, Pedro. Because I was lucky enough to grow up with adventurous parents, my older sister Hillary and I were sent to travel Europe when Hillary was 17 and I was 15. My parents talked to some parents of our friends and we got together a little traveling squad with one of Hillary's friends, a 16-year-old girl named Ellie, and one of my friends, a 14-year-old boy named Alan. Alan and I had just finished our freshman years in high school. To make the trip cheaper, we would be staying with acquaintances, former work colleagues and distant relatives in Switzerland, Spain, France, and Italy, living out of our backpacks and using trains to link locations. This story is predicated on two things. First, the group's food rules. And second, an alcoholic's random curfew. So, to begin, it was in Switzerland that our group established the food rules. They went like this. Since Hillary and Ellie were older than Alan and me, they could refuse to eat any food we were given on the basis of it seeming weird or nasty. Whether it was bitter fish baked into a pie, a neon cut of meat, or what appeared to me to be cooked and curdled mayonnaise over candied yams, the girls would shove their plates to us when the hosts were in the kitchen getting more food and Alan and I were expected to quickly devour the contents before the hosts returned. With the girls' plates quickly emptied, Alan and I were yelled at more than once for allowing the girls to out-eat us. 
something that's not socially acceptable in most of Europe. But we just apologize and go to work on our own plates when that happened. It was in Switzerland that we established these rules, and it was a simple green salad that started it all. We were staying on an organic farm owned by the Gautier family, and the hosts had brought a salad before the main course. The salad looked innocuous, but it had a really strange flavor to it. When I looked under the leaves, I saw that every single leaf was coated in small purplish-green bugs crawling in every direction. We all kind of realized this around the same time, and both Hillary and Ellie pushed their plates toward us, and Hillary said, We're older than you, and we're girls, so you have to eat ours. Well, I guess that was enough logic for us, because Alan and I only hesitated for a moment before quickly dispatching their salads and shoving the plates back to them. And once this was started, the practice became the usual. Unidentifiable food in Barcelona. Alan and I ate it. Pink-colored cold pasta salad in Rome. Alan and I, well, we ate that too. Fast forward now to Paris, where we stayed with Alan's 90-year-old great-aunt, twice removed, in Saint-Germain, on the outskirts. This aunt was a Polish immigrant who spoke vicious French and drank clear, hard alcohol out of an earthen jug. She was terrified of the entire world and tried to leave her apartment as little as possible. She told us that our parents were unfit negligence, allowing what she saw as grade school children traipsing across Europe without any adult chaperones. So, to be safe, she instituted a 7 p.m. curfew and the problem with this curfew, from our point of view, of course, was that 7 p.m. was three hours before dark in a nightlife-driven city. Basically, we were in a place called the City of Lights, La Ville Lumière, and we weren't supposed to see any lights at all. Well, we followed her rules for two nights, we went out in the morning, saw sculptures and architecture, fine art and antiquities at various museums, and returned home just before seven o'clock, when the old woman would let us in her front door with a look on her face, like there were wolves chasing us in from the streets. She was sweet, though. She would immediately feed us bread and butter, or bread and cheese, saying we must be hungry, we must be hungry, which we were. I was always hungry. And the old woman cooked for us while we ate the starter food. But regarding her rules, being teenagers, the third night, we decided to change those rules. We decided to stay out until 10 o'clock with the plan of telling the woman that we'd gotten lost, taken the wrong train, and ended up in a part of the city we didn't recognize. So that's what we did. And later, we came through the door. That night, 10 o'clock, three hours late, this, this uh, great aunt was frazzled with fear. I remembered her yelling, 
Tu devais avoir si peur, si peur. You must have been so scared, so scared. And because we were bad people, we said, Ah oui, bien sûr, bien sûr. We were so scared. We were just thankful to be safe again. She said, Okay, I have something to calm your nerves. And she sat us down at the little table in the dining room, went back into the kitchen, and returned with a plate of bread and four tumblers, each half full of her special stash of clear hard liquor. She said, Allez, allez, vous y allez, and pointed to the glasses, which smelled to us like rubbing alcohol. But we all nodded and said, Oh, merci beaucoup, and lifted our glasses. And just lifting the glasses seemed to satisfy her, and she turned to walk into the kitchen to begin cooking more food. But as soon as she was gone, both Hillary and Ellie handed their glasses to Alan and me. Ellie said, there's no way I can drink that. Yeah, me neither, Hillary said. Alan and I were freshmen in high school. We were not drinkers. Yet, we were holding two half-full dinner glasses of hard alcohol, one in each hand. But Alan shrugged and downed Ellie's glass. So I followed his lead and pounded Hillary's after. We handed their empty glasses back, choking and gasping, just before the great aunt walked back into the room. Seeing the girls' empty glasses and the boys still full, she mocked Alan and me. She said, Are you little girls, or are you men? Well, Alan and I looked at each other again. Alan said, Bottoms up? And without another word, we downed the second glasses. The thing is, I remember food coming to the table later. I just don't remember eating it. What I do remember is that Alan and I thought that we were both dogs. I remember crawling, chasing each other around the table and barking at each other. And then the next thing I knew, I woke up on the floor. It was late the next morning and I had a terrible headache. After recovering for half the afternoon, sipping water and chewing small bites of bread, the only thing we could get down, the girls announced that we were fine. It was 14 juillet, the National Independence Day, and we were staying out really late to watch the midnight fireworks at the Eiffel Tower. The girls told us they'd figure out a good lie for the old lady later. So, we left in the afternoon, watched a parade on the Champs-Élysées, went and found food, took our time wandering. Then, suddenly, it was nighttime, and we needed to get to the Eiffel Tower. We went down to the metro and right away things were off. All of the metro cars were packed, full. You had to wait for three or four trains sometimes just to get enough space to enter a car. It was total chaos, yet we kept seeing the same man on every train. As we linked metro lines, he was with us. He was with us and he was with us again. After four trains being followed by the same Weird, middle-aged white man. Alan and I decided to take action. 
We told the girls at our next stop to run and get on any random train. They did, and we ran with them, and the man ran after us. When we slid into a train car just before the door shut, the man tried to slide in after us, but Alan and I pushed him back off the train, made him stumble onto the platform. Then the door shut, and the man was gone. Alan and I felt like heroes, like powerful grown men. We swaggered a little bit after that, kept telling ourselves how great we were. But now our group was on the wrong train, going somewhere random. It took us a little while to get back. We later missed another connection. By the time we finally, finally got to the Eiffel Tower, the fireworks had just ended. It was after one in the morning, but we decided to wander around the neighborhood and check things out since we hadn't done much all day. We were two blocks from the Eiffel Tower when a young Arab man, maybe in his late teens or early 20s, stepped out from under the shadow of an awning. He walked straight up to Hillary and Ellie, grabbed them, and started talking dirty in French. I was right behind them. I was 15 years old and 123 pounds. But in my mind, I was practically a man. I drank hard alcohol now. I shoved stalkers off trains. So I stepped up to the young man and popped him. Knocked him off the curb where he stumbled and fell. I thought there might be a fight between him, between the two of us as he was getting up and I was feeling the confidence of a hard alcohol drinking full grown man. But that's when this guy's friends appeared. I don't know how many of them there were. Maybe eight. Maybe ten. I don't know. Enough to circle all the way around me. And quickly, someone hit me from behind. And when I looked up, someone else with what looked like a broken wrist. He hit me in the face with his plaster cast. And that I don't remember anything at all. A while later, I woke up in a big puddle of my own blood. An ambulance was there. Paramedics were checking me out, telling me I might have cracked my jaw, broken my nose, but I was okay, they said, covered in bruises, but generally fine. They also told us that the hospital in that part of town was so terrible that I shouldn't even bother going. So the girls and Alan took me home to the great aunt's apartment. And the great aunt was reasonably hysterical. My shirt was covered in blood. And I was concussed. And we were eight hours late. And the old woman, the great aunt, she kept screaming and calling my sister and Ellie whores. Common whores, just plain whores. And I remember holding my head in the bathroom. And washing the blood off my face. And washing the blood out of my hair. Hillary stuck her head in and told me that we were leaving in the morning, taking a train to the south of France. On the train the next day, when my body hurt all over, I crawled into the luggage rack and I went to sleep. When we arrived at the four families house on the Camargue, the Côte d'Azur, the father, Monsieur Four, told us that the family only had enough room in the cabin for the two girls to stay. 
So the girls, they slept inside that whole week on beds at the seaside cabin house. And this is how Alan and I ended up being forced to spend an entire week sleeping on a beautiful little sailboat in southern Europe on the Mediterranean Sea. In the best thing I've read this week, I'm going to read a very short story, less than half a page, from the author Amy Hempel. I've read every one of Amy Hempel's story collections, and I was excited when I found out that she just put out a new book titled Sing to It. The opening story is the title story, so here's Sing to It. At the end, he said, no metaphors. Nothing is like anything else. Except he said to me before he said that, make your hands a hammock for me. So there was one. He said, not even the rain, he quoted the poet, not even the rain has such small hands. So there was another. At the end, I wanted to comfort him, but what I said was, sing to it. The Arab proverb, when danger approaches, sing to it. Except I said to him before I said that, no metaphors. No one is like anyone else. And he said, please. So at the end, I made my hands a hammock for him, my arms, the trees. That's the end of the first story, and after I finished reading that, I closed the book and I thought for a little while. I thought, and I know this is kind of a weird connection, but I thought about my accident, my big accident. Five years ago, I was biking to work. It was a 38-degree day and raining, December 4th, 2014. I was biking south on a one-way road. There were two cars in front of me and two cars behind me. And an SUV tried to gun it alley to alley, right to left, came across into the bike lane, and I slammed into it, hit the back left panel, went over my handlebars, broke my shoulder, but I wouldn't know that till later. I shattered my helmet. There was a trident pattern in the brake in the helmet. And that day, I suffered a traumatic brain injury. I don't want to bore people with all the details of my traumatic brain injury. I'll just say I had coup and counter-coup action, and I had a lake of blood over my right hemisphere. Obviously, I couldn't work for a while. Um, I struggled to work for quite a while, four years. I'm still struggling to work a little bit. <laughs> I did cognitive therapy, neurovision therapy, vocational rehab. I still meet with my neurologist. Um, and I'm grateful to all my caregivers. I'm a lot better now, but I still struggle with some things. I've had seizures, mostly focal seizures, but some grand mal seizures. 
I'll still have a seizure if I look at a strobe light, even if it's just a strobe on TV. I can have a seizure if I watch a movie in a movie theater. And a couple years ago I found out that I'll have a seizure if I watch fireworks. So for me and my dogs, the 4th of July is just not the best holiday anymore. I guess I could feel bad for myself, but there are ways that my brain was unaffected. Socially, I'm okay. I can talk to people. I can still be empathetic. I have headaches every single day, but I'm still able to write. I'm still able to be creative. I'm also lucky that I am still somewhat coordinated. I can still rock climb. I can play games. And if I think about it, all of our lives are complicated. All of us struggle. All of us are fragile. I mean, if you think about it, all of us are just three minutes of no oxygen from dying, right? So when I'm overwhelmed now, thanks to the author Amy Hempel, I repeat that Arab proverb. I say to myself, when danger approaches, I sing to it. For this episode segment called Geeking Out, we're going to talk about elevators. I was watching one of the 653 movies in which an elevator falls uncontrollably down an elevator shaft and I started to think about that one time when I met an elevator maintenance worker who ranted to me about elevator scenes in movies. He told me how ridiculous it was that elevators were always falling in TV shows. That's just stupid, stupid idea, he said. Ugh, movies. People don't even know how elevators work. I stayed silent and just listened to him because up until that point, I didn't know anything about elevators either. So, I went home and researched, and I found out some incredible things. First, the basics. This is how an elevator works. This is an average elevator. There's a motorized pulley at the top of the elevator shaft, and a compensator pulley at the bottom. If you can't picture pulleys, those look like wheels at the top and the bottom, and over those wheels run the cables which look like stretched rubber bands, although each one is made up of more than 150 strands of highly engineered steel and composites. So these cables are incredibly strong and also flexible. The average elevator has four to eight cables. And the pulley system works like this. On one side of the pulley system is the car rising to the top and the bottom of the elevator shaft. On the other side of the pulley system is the counterweight, which is roughly equal to the weight of the car plus a half capacity load. That means that the motor never has to work more than 50% in either direction, a full car or an empty car. And this counterweight also means that gravity helps lift the car, so the motor is never overworked. Okay, now that we understand the basics, here are some facts that I discovered about elevators first. There are about 700,000 elevators in the United States alone. And 
1.9 million elevators in the world. Statistically, elevators are the safest way to travel worldwide, 20 times safer than an escalator. Also, statistically, four out of four people who die in elevator accidents are elevator technicians who are killed in construction and maintenance-based accidents such as electrical shocks, falls, crushing injuries, etc. Also, statistically speaking, according to a British research group, half of elevator passenger injuries involve stumbling while under the influence of alcohol. Um, let's see here. There were 24 elevators in the ancient Roman Colosseum, and those 24 elevators were manually operated by 200 slaves. And in a modern elevator, if there's some kind of weird movie-like catastrophe, all but one elevator cable can snap and the car will still stay up. But if all cables snap, the car still wouldn't fall more than a few feet because all elevators have an automatic passive brake system that engages when the elevator begins to fall too fast. So, in the event of all cables snapping, an elevator car would only fall a few feet, then stop completely. But, if all cables and the automatic brake both failed, there's still a backup electromagnetic brake that will stop the car. Now, if you look things up, there are statistics on everyone in an elevator car dying, but those statistics come from fires and complete building collapse. So, just to be clear, if the entire building collapses, the elevator will go with it. But other than that, your elevator is not going to plummet to the bottom of the building. If it did, though, both the air below and all of the snapped cable piled up beneath it would cushion the elevator car's fall, and the people inside would live. And this has happened once in history. Once. Here's the scene. In 1945, at the end of World War II, a B-25 Mitchell bomber was flying low over Manhattan in dense, foggy skies and was supposed to turn left at the Chrysler building, but instead the pilot inexplicably turned right. So... The plane crashed into the Empire State Building, damaging the building between the 78th and 80th floors and starting a fire. The Empire State Building's elevator operator, Betty Lou Oliver, was thrown out of the open elevator car doors. This broke her neck, her back, and her pelvis, but she was still alive. A few minutes later, first responders placed her on a stretcher back in the elevator car to send her to the bottom floor for treatment. Then, because of the fire and the impact, all of the elevator cables snapped. And this was before the double brake system was invented. So, already injured, Betty Lou Oliver plummeted 75 floors, more than 1,000 feet, in the elevator car. But the 1,000 feet of cable and air beneath her cushioned the impact, and Betty Lou Oliver easily survived the fall. She later moved to Fort Smith, Arizona, had three children, and died peacefully 54 years later.
For our fifth segment today, Ayutame, a little advice, I'm responding to a listener named Huck, who posted on my website that he loved the first episode's lists and goals, and was wondering if I had any advice for my listeners. But, since I'm not very wise and only have my own experience to draw from, I spend the two weeks between episodes struggling to come up with anything specific, anything that might work for most people. Then I thought of this. For years, I practiced what I called the philosophy of no. Basically, this meant that I said no to almost every single opportunity, which sounds crazy. I get it. But I did this so I could focus on just a few things. I made a short list for myself. I decided to focus on my family, my writing, my teaching, and my rock climbing. I said no to really cool mountain biking adventures, alpine climbs, cool trips, other hobbies, etc. And for more than a decade, I practiced this philosophy and focused on just a few things. And in certain ways, it paid off. I did improve as a teacher and a writer. I became a better rock climber, and I spent a ton of time with my family. But then, a few years ago, I asked myself what it would look like if I practiced the philosophy of yes. What if I said yes to some outstanding and different things? I tried it, and it was a totally new experience for me. But, for example, saying yes led me to taking my family to a small house in a town of 200 people on the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica one winter. February and March, a town where nobody even owned a car. Nobody spoke English. And I wrote a new novel draft. And saying yes later led me to being the spring writer in residence of Joshua Tree National Park, where I wrote poetry and adventured in the backcountry alone. And again, later, saying yes led me to kayaking the East Fork of the Owyhee River in a small Grand Canyon, the most remote river canyon in the lower 48 states. And then, this last year, saying yes again led me to racing a world record-holding, world champion professional rock climber in an endurance rock climbing race that is part of a feature film that's debuting at outdoor film festivals this coming year. So, while I might not have a specific list of activities that encompass my advice, I can say to you, Huck, or to anyone else, try saying no for a year or two and get a lot better at just a few things. Make a short list of activities that you want to focus on, that you care about the most. Then, after a year or two of saying no to most things, Try saying yes to outstanding and different opportunities. Say yes to almost everything cool and see where those experiences take you. Y finalmente, this episode is dedicated to my mother, the oil painter Pamela C. Hoffmeister, who taught us when we were young that boring is the worst swear word. We were not allowed in our house to say, I'm bored, or this is boring. If we did say those things, we got extra chores. I was thinking about that this morning, as I was staring out my big kitchen window, watching Earl, our front yard squirrel, as he stood on the squirrel ladder that we built for him in the front yard spruce. Earl licked his little paws,
and said to me, Ask your listeners for a five-star review and ask them to subscribe and ask them to tell other people about The Boring is a Swear Word podcast. And my...